and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Obaska, and today I'm speaking with Sophie Jarvis, the director of Until Branches Bend, a film that explores the intersections between agriculture and climate, environmentalism and industry. I'm delighted to be able to talk to you here at South by Southwest. Thank you so much. I wonder if you could tell me, first of all, where where the idea for your film first came from. Yeah, of course. As you saw, we filmed in a region called the Okanagan, which is the sort of agricultural valley uh, in the BC interior. And it's where uh, my mom grew up, my grandparents lived there, and I spent a lot of my, t- my life, my childhood growing up there and as a teenager and as an adult, spending lots of time there. It's just such a beautiful, idyllic place. And... In the summertime, especially when like the fruits around, you have the stone fruit industry, you have, uh, it's just like a really special, special place. But I think I kind of was just like, well, what could go wrong here? And I was really interested in the idea of a bug because it's so small, but it can have such huge catastrophic uh, consequences. And it has in the past in, in real life. And I was just interested in that idea of like something that's so small hidden under the surface, could come to light at any point, you know it's going to. And that kind of parallels some of the other themes that are in the film that I was interested in in looking into, like her unwanted pregnancy um, and also just the history of colonialism. The history of colonialism and the way that you very seamlessly interweave that with the idea of like the grandmother who lives downstream and is affected by the environmental racism that literally flows the community. Yeah, yeah. The, what I really love about your film is that it tackles the issues around what happens when you have structural racism that creates a hostile environment for the health and safety of the community. I'm definitely not an expert. Like I'm a filmmaker who came from the city and I had this speculative idea, but I spent a lot of time doing research in the sense of I spoke to scientists at the research center. I spoke to farmers and I also spoke to people from the Silic Nation who are directly affected by monoculture. Farming is such an integral part of that, like our province there in terms of economy, but also just like local food source, but it has this history. And so I'm certainly not an expert on it, but I did do research on it to tell this story. It was just important to me to see how all those different threads come to be together. Yeah. And in my mind, in my film, there's no real bad guy. Like, you know, there's someone to, to, yeah. to be I mean, a bad a very sure. person you don't <laughs> Yes. But I also think that his reasons for not listening to Robin are with him thinking this is probably for the best for everyone in the community, Mm -hmm. because if it is nothing, then why would we shut everything down? So it's just a really complicated issue that is born from this history. (laughs) It is. And it's born born from a really terrible history, but it's also sort of simultaneously a thorny question on where where do we draw the line between progress and productivity and health and safety. Yeah, capitalism. Yay, capitalism. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm okay, so this is the point in the conversation where I will just say I've I've lately started taking to talking about how we just need to burn all the isms down. This is the thing that we're constantly fighting against with everything. As a filmmaker and podcaster with disabilities, I really feel like ableism is at its root. Capitalism is at its root. Ableism 
and all of the other isms flow from there. Yeah. I feel very intensely that your film speaks to this in very direct and very beautiful ways. Thank and you. I wonder how much of that were you worried about in the perception <laughs> of it in such a weird, divisive political time? You know, at its heart, it's a story that's about a woman who's just not heard and her relationship with her sister. And that's really what I focused on the most when I was trying to tell the story was that emotional journey. But there's a world that they exist in. And as a filmmaker, I feel like it's my responsibility to at least do the due diligence of learning as much as I can as it pertains to the story. I'd say I'm most nervous to show this film to people who actually live in the region and who I'm sure know way more than I do about it. But I do feel like we had a lot of support from those people. Like everyone was interested in helping tell this story and we got support in that way. All of that stuff I think is part of, uh, innately part of why I tell stories. It's my own opinions or even, well, what, that's not what I mean to say. My own opinions, but also like, nothing's finite. I'm always growing. I'm always trying to learn and trying, you know, open to changing my mind. Right. And I feel like making art is that it's a process of learning. Mm -hmm. It's a process of, um, being open-minded and also seeing the patterns that fall into place. Mm -hmm. Cause in the end, the story is a story about a person, but it unfolds because of the isms, right? Like yeah. that's, that's the foundation of, of where the story gets born from. So it is. <laughs> They're it intertwined. Is. <laughs> they are intertwined. But I also love how there is entwined within the narrative mm. something so personal in terms of the story of trying to seek that abortion, yeah. trying to understand how unwanted pregnancies mm -hmm. take shape and yeah. the way that women are treated. Yeah. In society, in totally. various different kinds of contexts. Mm -hmm. And for you, did you have a specific director's note that mm -hmm. you gave to the actor who played Robin? Because yeah. it's such a very subtle performance yeah. that she delivers in the film. Yeah. You know, what we always came back to when we talked about the character was that Robin is stuck. In terms of the timeline of the story, Robin became Lainey's caregiver when she was Lainey's age. So at about 18, probably just finishing high school. And some of the ways that we wanted to show that she was stuck wasn't through necessarily expository dialogue or anything, but more in terms of like what she's wearing. She's wearing what she would have worn when she was 17, 18 in high school in the early 2000s. Which, you know, looks, um, it's a bit dated now to be wearing an outfit like that. But in a way, I think sometimes when something big happens in your life, maybe things don't change you're, because you're focused on something else, right? Mm -hmm. So the way she does her hair, the type of glasses she might be wearing and her outfit, like we got really excited about this idea of kind of researching, you know, old yearbook photos from when we were that age and be like, <laughs> well, what does she look like and what's hard to break out of the habit of wearing when you don't have that? flexibility to change because you're so stuck. And I think part of that comes through in everything she does. She's stuck in a role and how people see her. So she's a, a good neighbor to her friend, Judy. She helps take care of her kids. She's reliable. She, you know, works really hard to provide for her sister. There's all these different things that she has taken on with pride, probably. Mm, so I think when she kind of gets faced with this 
deviancy from the community expectations, that's when being stuck and wanting to not be stuck anymore kind of butts their head. And so really that's what we talked about a lot. Uh, Grace likes to say that when she thinks about the character, she thinks about being a bug stuck in a jar. where You just don't, oh, wow. you can see beyond it, but you can't really uh, get out of it. So <laughs> it's funny because yeah. that is such a resonant image within mm-hmm. the film mm-hmm. specifically of the bug trying to yeah. crawl up the sides. For you, were there moments that you felt like there were specific obstacles you had to face that were particularly difficult for you on this project? Yes. Well, um, this project was in development for so long. Like, I think I wrote the first draft in 2016. And 2016 was a wild year, as we all know. And things just got... uh, The film seems to have gotten more and more topical as the years went on before we actually filmed. We were supposed to film in 2020. And of course, that didn't happen. We had to push for the pandemic. And so when we did film, it was July 2021. And it was during one of the worst wildfire seasons in BC. You know, our film touches on environmental issues. And here we are, a film crew who are, you know, filming in an environment where there's, uh, we had to check evacuation warnings every single day, multiple times a day. And we're staying um, in a town where a lot of people who are evacuated are staying as well. So we were really in the thick of it. And I was so proud of our team. Like our producers are so mindful and ethically minded and safety first, like really concerned for the crew. And we're also an independent production. So I think one of the hardest things is we're telling the story, which has some parallels to what's going on in the world right now. But we're also making it Mm -hmm. in the midst of other people's tragedies too. So I think between COVID and the fires, it was just, it was a hard production. Everyone came through. Okay. We had such a great team. They were so supportive. Everyone really believed in the story and in the sensitivity around it, but, but it was hard. It was a hard, hard conditions to work in and a heat wave. So, you know, Oh my God. <laughs> it <was> tough. <laughs> that sounds hard. And, it, yeah. and it's interesting too, because I feel like the, the performances are mostly so naturalistic. Yeah. I assume this is something you were trying to achieve. Yeah, and <laughs> thank it, you. <laughs> it, it works out so well, but it it seems like such a balancing act to try to get to that when you have mm-hmm. one character who's sort of the semi-villain who's play-acting throughout the piece, yeah. and then everyone else feels very naturalistic and almost like they're untrained in yeah. any sense. Yeah, I was so lucky. Our, our actors were all so amazing. Truly, some of them, it was their first time. Like for Al- Alexandra Roberts, um, who plays Lainey, it was her first film. And she knocked it out. I, I think she knocked it out of the park. She did. Yeah. And her and Grace had a really good dynamic with each other, even from the beginning. And um, I think that all the actors were really generous with each other. Uh, Halemi Sparrow, who plays Isabel. It was actually her second cousin, I think, who Cole Sparrow Crawford, who plays her son, Zach. And it was his first film. And Holemia has more experience as well. So like these dynamics between the family members were really strong because it was really the, the them supporting each other and bringing out the best in each other. And I was just really lucky to get to witness it and, you know, yeah. made my job easy in, in that way. And, you know, we were filming in Penticton and Carameas, which are, you know, smaller towns outside of the city. And while there is a film community there, 
you know, when we're casting, we're looking for um, pretty specific roles and experience. And we had to really cast a wide net. Our local casting director, Angela, she, she did everything to try to find local cast. She like put out ads on the radio. She put stuff nice. on like online bulletins. Like it was really cool to see <laughs> how that all could come together in a place like that. And that's really exciting, too, because that almost feels like it's baked into the ethos of your film about local versus global and making sure that you're actually using local resources Mm. and really reflecting something. Exactly. And I will say, like, although the film was pretty specific, like, inspired by this one town... I did try to keep the location and setting somewhat ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that we never say specifically that it's set in Canada and in Canada, our laws around abortion and reproductive mm-hmm. rights are a lot better than in some parts of the States or they're more, you know, uh, liberal, but we also see how Canada gets really uh, easily, the States affect us mm-hmm. politically. And so things sometimes happen there's always a fear. There's always a precariousness. So the story that Robin's going through with seeking an abortion is definitely something where in reality in BC, it would be easier for her to do that. But we kept it ambiguous just in the sense of acknowledging the speculative nature of the film and the precariousness of everything it feels like sometimes. Also, American audiences tend to assume, oh, Canada is the promised land of yeah. and honey. And it's so hard for people to acknowledge the gaps that exist in medical care. The haves versus the have-nots. There are tremendous differences in terms of the services that they can access. And so few people, I think, really understand that. Yes. Well, especially Canada, so much of our population lives along the border uh, with the states. And there's a lot of people who live way further up north in very remote communities where gain access to care, even just the transportation for it. Like, I think Greyhound canceled all the bus services up north. And really? Don't quote me on that because I don't exactly know all the details, but there's a very important Greyhound bus route in BC that was can- on the Highway of Tears that was canceled. And it's just devastating for the safety of people who travel along there. And it's sort of specific to Canada because we have this huge, rural, incredible part of the world, but that it's just really it takes a long time to get resources that you'd expect, basic resources. Yeah. Whenever I think about Canada and the kinds of care that you receive in Canada, it's always such a question mark to me what you're actually getting because it's a mystery. <laughs> Oh, it's a total mystery and it's a bureaucratic issue. Again, I don't I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but my understanding of it is just that the administrative technology can't keep up with the actual need for care. So people get lost in a system. I mean, as with anything, of course, but I have a feeling that that's one of the, sadly, one of the big reasons why people are having such a hard time accessing care is because they get lost in this system that Mm -hmm. can't keep up with the technology needed to actually provide. We're living in terrifying times. I love that you're telling speculative stories in this space because (laughs) it, it is a somewhat hopeful while simultaneously terrifying (laughs) experience. Yeah, I'm glad it came across that way. I don't want to give, I mean, you've seen it, but for whoever's reading, I don't want to give away the ending. But one thing that felt really important to me from the beginning of telling this story was this idea of like 
burn everything down. Yeah. Because that's kind of, you know, sometimes it's drastic things need to happen for and drastic, for change, drastic change. change to happen. Yeah. That was the thing that sort of sung to me from the very beginning of conceiving of the project was to make sure that that moment's matched with yeah, with a bit of joy, a bit yeah. of reckless joy. No, and it, I've spent a long time like talking with friends about as I think anyone in the social justice space, like you yeah. spend a long time thinking about okay, but what is the purpose of continuing to persist in mm-hmm. these spaces that are ultimately hostile to us? Yeah. Like, shouldn't we just burn shit down? <laughs> yeah, to be very vernacular about it and. It's really a beautiful moment in your film. It's so lovely to see. Thank you. I'm glad that it resonated with you as well. Very strongly. Very strongly. (laughs) I wonder what's next at this point in terms of what you're working on. Oh, you know, as I mentioned, I've been working on this film for so many years. So I'm really excited to make something new. I actually just got back from... Switzerland. So this film is a co-production with Switzerland. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was Swiss, and so I have a Swiss Swiss connection there. We really loved our Swiss producers, and I've been really interested in thermal spas in Switzerland, and just this idea of taking the waters. It's like centuries-old practice that people do there for like kind of like seeking a cure, but there is some medical backing for it people do find a lot of relief when they go visit some of these places that have naturally mineral rich waters so I have a story that's set in a fictional medical thermal spa where it's kind of like a medical tourist destination where people come from all over the world looking for but it's not a horror film like the cure for wellness no it's not like that (laughs) it's a bit more it's in the same tone as until branch has been a bit of a surreal ish you know ultimately it's a story about a mother and daughter who go seeking a cure for the mother's um you know she has migraines but it's rooted in something a bit more challenging just the frustration of not being properly diagnosed and it explores Mm -hmm. themes of invisibility so invisibility in illness so she has an invisible illness and invisible labor because her daughter cares for her and I feel like often it's it is often women who are caring and not being paid for it or Mm -hmm. not seen for that and also invisibility in you know for the mom being a a woman of a certain age who Mm -hmm. her voice is becoming less and less heard so that's sort of the theme we're working with um and it's set in Switzerland, which, as you know, has um, its own history with, you know, assisted mm-hmm. dying, too. So yeah. uh, there's a subplot that kind of touches on that as well. But again, I have so much research to do because it's all the very beginning stages of this project. Yeah. <laughs> you clearly did so much wonderful research on the last film. I can yeah. only imagine we're in for a treat with the next. Oh, thank you. I hope it takes less time to come to come out, <laughs> to come to Yes, to fruition, exactly. (laughs) Hopefully this one will emerge in the less than seven years. Yeah. (laughs) Bugs and fruit. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview and for your time. This was really wonderful, so thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the thoughtful questions and for understanding the movie (laughs) on a level that not everyone does, so I appreciate that a lot. Really? Yeah. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. 
Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. (laughs) 